Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Well, if you're here for the first time, so glad that um, you took a step, stepped out and, and joined us. You know, and if you are a new or newer, uh, we have the, what we call this first Sunday lunch. We always buy a few extra meals. If you want to stay and have lunch on us, please feel free to do that. Um, and also, if you're joining us online, we, we appreciate you doing that. So like many of you, I've kind of followed this um, war in Ukraine with um, a good bit of angst. I spent a year in Russia and got to know Ukrainian students and all kinds of things. But, but one of the things that has stood out to me is there's this mercenary group in the Russian army called the Wagner Group. And what they've gone is they've gone into prisons. People are sentenced. They say, you know, do you want, do you want out of your sentence? I mean, you did a crime. We can get you out, though, but you, what you have to give, you have to give the Russian army six months. And if, it's a big if, if you survive, well, then you're free. Now, I don't think what they tell them is, we're going to give you a shovel. I've read they put these guys only with shovels, and they're the first ones to try and dig a trench. And the mortality rate is just off the charts with these people. But, but that's the gig, um, at least in Russia right now. If you want out of your prison sentence, you've failed culture, you've sinned against society, here's your chance. Now, your survival rate's minimal. What about us when we fail God? Is God working a deal with us where you can take a risk, it'll cost you? What happens? Well, what's our hope when we fail God? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we'll go through all the, all the way through that chapter, wrestling with that question, what's our hope when we fail God? If you haven't been with us for the last number of months, we have been in the books of First and Second Samuel. Israel is transitioning from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. And in that, they've really been seeking security, and what they said is, we need a king to be like everybody else. And God, speaking through the prophet Samuel, said, no, that's not really not what you need. But they said, well, yeah, we do. And finally, God said, okay, so, so you find out what you need is me. I'm going to give you your request, give you a king. And the first one's name was Saul. Saul missed the memo when he was anointed. Saul, you do not have absolute authority. You operate under God's authority. And Saul did his own thing twice, and God said, we're done. We're moving on. Anointed another guy named David. As king, that's the David who dropped Goliath with a stone. And um, Saul was threatened by David's rising popularity and began to pursue him for anywhere from 10 to 13 years. In that, David learned a lot about trusting God and saw God's provision. And finally, Saul dies in a battle. Uh, David, after a civil war, is an anointed king over Israel. And, and he begins to uh, push out Israel's borders as he wins battles against neighbors. And for the first time, Israel is resting in the promised land, safe from these raids. But the protecting the peace was an ongoing thing, and in this one case, David didn't go out to battle and uh, stayed in. And, and he's up on a roof, and he looks down, he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing, and thinks, she looks good. Who is she? And uh, the guy says, well, she's somebody's wife and somebody's daughter, but David said, send her to me. And he lies with her, and he impregnates her. Now, long before Israel entered the promised land, um, God had said, kings, you shall not multiply wives for yourself. And David's been doing it. He'd been just collecting wives and collecting wives, and it, no thing. He'd been getting away with it. I mean, he had, he had dozens, literally, concubines. What's one more? But he'd been getting away with it. But this time it caught up with him. And she's pregnant while her husband was out at battle. This is a bad look. So David thinks, I'll call the husband back, you know, I'll feign interest about the war and say, why don't you go sleep with your wife? And that's way before DNA testing. Nobody will know any different. 
But the guy is so honorable, he said, if my men aren't engaging with that pleasure, I'm not. David tries the next night to get him drunk. And he gets him drunk, but he still won't. No, he's too honorable. I mean, so David gives orders, sealed orders, that he takes back to the commanding officer, Joab, that they are to put him on the front line, him being Uriah, the husband, pull back and, and let him be killed. And that's what happens. And it looks like David's pulled it off. Um, after a time of mourning, he marries the woman. They have this child together. And, and it just looks like he pulled it off. But the very end of chapter 11 says this. Last sentence. But the thing David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. God saw. So, what's up? Well, we're going to find out what's up. Starting in chapter 12. God sends the prophet Nathan. Then, Nathan, then the Lord sent Nathan... And he came to him and said, now remember, you're, you're Nathan, you're God's prophet, but you are still going to the king of Israel, and you're going to confront him about a sin that he thinks he's pulled off. Man, you could lose your life. How do you go about doing this? This is the only true parable in the Old Testament. Okay, Jesus used them a bunch in the New Testament. But the beauty of a parable is this. It pulls you into the story, and, and you get sucked in, and then the parable in turns and says, you're that guy. See if this happens here in 2 Samuel 12. So here we go with the parable. It says, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd. To prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather he took the poor man's ewe, lamb. And prepared it for the man who had come to him. So that's the story. Rich guy is somebody come in. He's got a whole herd. But this poor guy's got one little ewe. And he says we'll, we'll, we'll take his. So David that's the story. What do you think? What do you think? Well, here's what David thinks in verses 5 and 6. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. So that's the first thing David pronounced. This guy, this guy deserves to die for abuse of power, abuse of wealth, and he must take restitution for the lamb, must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Uh-oh. The old, uh, the old parable worked. David pronounced judgment. Got sucked into this story, didn't he? Pronounced judgment on the guy. And now it's going to turn on him. Verse 7. Nathan then said to the Lord, you, that, that guy you said deserves to die, and the guy that has to pay fourfold, you, David, are the man. That's one time you want to say, you the man. Yeah, you're the man, David. Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, it is I, David, who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul, 13 years being chased. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if, you had, if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. And in fact, we found out in 2 Samuel 7, God told David, I'm going to give you an eternal throne. Your son, great, 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 Jesus, he's going to give you an eternal throne. And Jesus is known as the son of David. Man, I took you from a shepherd boy 
and I gave you all this stuff. So here's my question, David. Verse 9. Why? Why? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your own, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Here come the consequences of your sin, starting in verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Next few weeks, you know what's coming? A little bit of a spoiler here. You know what's coming in David's family? Rape of a brother and a half-sister. Revenge by the brother for that way, right, rape, murder. The guy who murders, he needs to split, so he does. David's heartbroken, so his general says, I'll bring him back. And when he, his son, when he comes back, doesn't get the attention, shuts the guy's field on fire. Finally, this son, who's never been disciplined because David has lost all moral credibility with his family, well, he leads a coup and drives David out of the city. Ended up, David has to put that son to death. Here's, here's what verse 11 says. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own house. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Part of the coup was Absalom, who ran the coup. You need to go up on the roof. We're going to pitch a tent. There's going to be public knowledge that you're in lying with David's concubines. That's tantamount to taking the kingdom. David, your own son, will take your concubine and wives. Verse 12, indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do the thing before all Israel and under the sun. David, there will be consequences to this action. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Now give, Nathan, uh, give David credit here. He fears God. A prophet who didn't fear God, a king who didn't fear God would just say, off with your head. I don't need your voice. But David's astute enough to know this is God, and I can, I can take out Nathan, but God will raise somebody. I'll just multiply my trouble. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, catch this, the Lord also has taken your sin away. You shall not die. As bad as that is, you committed adultery and you murdered to cover it up. I have absorbed that. I will take that on. Verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the child to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. The child you conceive with Bathsheba. So Nathan went to his house. So God is going to forgive David, but David, you will live the consequence of your sin. And the first consequence is this child. Here we go. Verse 15b, then the, child, then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. 
How can then we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? But, verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, yeah, he's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came down to his house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Servants are perplexed. Verse 21, they ask, what is this thing that you've done? When the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through the prophet, Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. First consequence, this child you conceived will die. And, and there's more coming, but God's still good. He lays with Bathsheba because he's a child, Solomon, who will be the heir apparent to the throne and will take Israel to the heights. So you say to me, Pastor, You've been to seminary three years. How do you explain the one child dying and the next child living? And after three years of studying Greek and Hebrew and all that kind of stuff, my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. There are things we just don't understand about God. Why does one child live and another die? I don't know. I will tell you this. I've done numerous funerals in pastoral ministry. The two that stick out to me, stillborn births. Unbelievably hard. And I know many of you have are various, had various experiences with that. My wife and I have two children with three miscarriages together. Why did those not turn out? I mean, I don't know. I don't, know. I don't have answers. But in the I don't know. We hold on to that God is good. And God will redeem the pain and the suffering. Uh, that's our hope. Verse 26 to 31, I won't read through it, talks about the end of the Ammonite Wars, finally puts that to end. So David thought he pulled it off, but then Nathan the prophet shows up. And he's got good news and he's got bad news. Bad news is you're going to live the consequence of this sin. The good news is God has forgiven you. And I want to focus on the good news for a minute. Because maybe the biggest challenge I have in pastoral counseling when I meet with people is, God can't forgive me. Andy, you don't know what I've done. God can't forgive me. And I don't want to compare sin, 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 but, but, but let me for a moment. What you've done has it been adultery followed by murder to cover it up? We're going to find out. We are finding out that God forgives that. After David was confronted with this sin, he wrote Psalm 51. And I don't have time to read through all of it. But I do want to spend some time talking about the forgiveness of God. First thing is, uh, God can forgive my sin. Look at Psalm 51, verse 7. 
Here's what David says. This is after he's been confronted. He says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I'm talking about that first snow before it gets dirty. That's a metaphor. I will make you clean. This is after he commits adultery and murder. You ever seen the uh, paper towel commercials? Maybe the quicker picker upper? You got a mess on the sink, right? And you wonder, does the paper towel have enough absorption power to take that stuff up or will it deteriorate? Is the weight of the stuff on the counter too much and is the thing all going to fall in a splat on the counter? Here's what God's saying. No matter how big the mess is on the counter, I can absorb it. I can take it up. The, the blood of Jesus, the lamb who was slain on the cross, is more than enough to cover your sin, more than enough to absorb what you've done. Both my sons and my wife are in here. If they walked up on stage and told you some of the stuff they've seen and behind those four walls, I'd be embarrassed. You guys say, we need to form a search committee. We need another pastor. <laughs> Seriously. That's okay. If we knew what you did, we wouldn't let you in the door today. The grace of God is bigger than our greatest failures. Oh, I don't feel it. They told me a long time ago when I came to faith, the word of God is truer than what we feel. So given that, here's David's request, Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Let, let, let's stop for a second. What David did, remember, he, when, 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 when God said, I'm done with Saul, he said, I'm going to find a man who is after my own heart. That was David. This is the man after God's own heart who did this. Here's the deal. You're capable and I'm capable of incredible evil. We're capable of heinous sin. This needs to be a regular prayer. God, continue, continue to cleanse my heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Because you and I, we're capable of all kind of crazy evil. I have what I call a life friend. He's out in Colorado. I've got once a year to stay with him. He's a counselor. When he started, he was one of, one of these, you have to get supervised hours. He was one of these big mental health facilities with court-mandated counseling. And along the way, and he said, Andy, this is an important qualifier, he had comparative success with the violent population. So anyone that was violent got funneled to him. And I said to him, Jeff, why do, you, why do you think that was? And he said, Andy, again, it's comparative, but any success I had, he said, I think it is, these guys see right through you. When you're sitting across, they see right through you. And he said, I truly believe that I was capable of doing what they did. And I think that gave me credibility with them. I understand we're not that different. Listen, you're not that different than David. I'm not that different than David. We need him to renew us, to cleanse us. Uh, another thought, we can't pay God back. Psalm 51, verse 16. Here's what David said. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. I did something wrong. Man, I... I need, to pay, I need to pay God back. I, my, I got a card here. I, 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 need to, I, need, right, I need to balance that out. David says you can't do that. Think about David's sin. What's he going to do to pay God back, by the way? But I'll tell you, this was a big 
challenge when I came to faith. I started in a Bible study, in the Dorn Bible study, very evangelical, very gospel-centered in August of my freshman year and didn't commit to Christ till February of my freshman year. That's six months. Because, see, I came from a religious system where you walk in and you tell a religious official, this is what I've done, and then he prays a prayer over you and he says, here's what you need to do. Do this and this and this. Do this to balance that. That's not the gospel. The gospel says you can't do jack but depend on the grace of God. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's so powerful. A young 16-year-old girl got her driver's license. She went and got her best friend. They went out driving, and she's backing up, and she hits a lamppost, and in a freak thing, the thing comes right down on the passenger side and kills her friend. She is devastated at the hospital, and she says to the chaplain, I'm going to be just like a daughter. Then Mother's Day, I'm going to go over there. Father's Day, and on birthday, I'm going to say your daughter. And the chaplain said, you can't. That would, you, you can't replace the daughter. That would be to give offense. Here's your own option. Tell them how sorry you are and ask for forgiveness. You think you're going to pay God back for your sin? Really? You're giving offense. It is to give offense just like, you know, our heart is all, you're going to give offense. You have one shot. Depend on the grace of God. Finally, here's what you can, quote unquote, give. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifice, okay, we all make sacrifice to God. Here's what they are. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You want to give something? Give God your broken. God, I, I, am bro- I am flat out devastated. I'm bro- I have nothing. God says, I can work with that. I got nothing but your forgiveness. Yeah, I can work with that. When I was finishing my MBA program, you had to take an oral test and you had to go get a couple professors to be on your committee. So I tracked a couple down and one of them was Dr. Rose. Sure, Randy, I'd love to be on your committee. But he said, you know, you guys in the MBA, you guys are pretty arrogant. You kind of know it all. So, you know, I just like to see, you know, some humility up there. Don't be afraid to say you don't know. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, sign this. Again, Andy, I'm really looking for humility up there and don't be afraid to say you don't know. I thought, okay, I got this. I got this. So we go in and we're about three questions in and he throws me a fastball like 98 miles an hour. I have no chance on this thing. So I say, you know, Dr. Rose, I, honestly, I don't know. What I have is a guess, but I, but I really don't know. Bang, I just passed. I got his vote to pass. I, I, yeah, I, I understand what you're looking for. You're looking for brokenness. Look, if that's true on an oral exam of an MBA at Texas A&M, how much more with a living God? What he needs is your brokenness. Doesn't he pay? You don't have, you can't. We can't. We can't pay him back putting all this together. We're looking at David and we're asking this question. What's our hope when we fail God? Here we go. Though we will live with the consequences of our failure, our sin, we will live with that. God forgives us. Why? Because of Jesus' death on the cross. Remember the ability to absorb? Jesus' death on the cross. It's ultra-absorbent. It can suck up anything you've done. Though we will live with the consequences of our failure, our sin, God forgives us because of Jesus' death on the cross. You know, a week out from Easter, here's the whole deal. Every one of us were created to be in a relationship with God, to live under his leadership, and we all rebelled. What happened in the garden, Adam and Eve saying, no, I don't think I'll do our own thing. That's you, that's me. We'll do our own thing. That creates a gap, an eternal gap with a holy God. Jesus came and lived the life we're supposed to live. Perfect submission to the Father, right up to the point he was convicted, term intentionally in quotes, in a mockery of a trial, 
He was spit on, he was whipped, he was beaten, and he was nailed to a cross. Confirmed dead, stick a sword in his side. Yeah, okay, he's dead. Wrap him up, bury him, put a guard there in front because we don't want any, any false rumors to get out. That's Friday afternoon. Sunday morning, man, he came back to life to conquer death and to forgive your sin. When you trust in him, he will forgive your sin. He will make your heart right. But what you need to know is it is the sacrifice of Jesus that takes away our sin. In the Jewish religious system, there was a sacrifice every year, but it had to be every year because it wasn't a perfect sacrifice. Here's what Hebrews said, though, about that sacrifice. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They can cover them, but they can't take them away. Next verse. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the God. That's the sacrifice we needed. That's the perfect sacrifice. That's the quicker picker-upper that can absorb your sin. That's our hope. The sacrifice of Jesus covers our sin. If you are at all a fan of the National Football League, you will recognize the term Black Monday. Black Monday is the Monday after the last regular season game. And it points to the fact that a number of coaches will be fired. That's why it's Black Monday. And, and usually these coaches can see it coming for weeks because for the fourth or the fifth year, their team is under 500, they're not making the playoffs, they're not progressing, blah, 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 blah. But they can see it coming, but they can't do anything about it. Their team still stinks, they don't have the quarterback, they don't have the defense, they don't, they don't have whatever they have. And, and, and the inevitable happens, and, and they can't stop it. Do you understand without Jesus... Our life is like Black Monday. You're just building. I'm just building to the end when the inevitable is going to happen. We're going to be judged for our sin. But our trajectory has changed because of the gospel. It does not have to go that way. There's a sacrifice, as we see with David, that is more than adequate to absorb your sin. Will we be people that would engage Jesus? The hope of Easter. Though we will live with the consequence of our sin, we can know because of the sacrifice of Jesus that God will forgive us. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the promise of your sacrifice. In the example of David, does it get more heinous than adultery followed by murder to cover it up? Lord, thank you that Nathan could tell him, you will not die. God has absorbed your sin. And David's kingship and his eternal legacy would continue. Lord, thank you for the certainty of that forgiveness, that we grow into it, understand it, and be eternally grateful for it. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.